I'm Tim Ritter. And I'm Nate Hansen. And we are Almost Heretical. And you can find us online at almostheretical.com. Okay, so we're back. Heaven, part two. It's part of this Heaven and Hell series. Go check it all out, almostheretical.com. If you haven't heard the rest, uh, we're deep in here. So first things first, do want to let you know that we have a second podcast that we're doing called Utterly Heretical that is for supporters of the show. If you want to find out more about that, you can do that at almostheretical.com or you can just go straight to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash almostheretical. Okay, so at the end of Heaven Part 1, last episode, you had uh, you had talked about how there's going to be there's all these questions. We want to we want to know what is the question or questions that heaven, the biblical vision of heaven, which maybe that's multiple things, but that this vision of heaven was the answer to. So oftentimes we just start with the answer. Here's what heaven is. Here's what it's going to be like. Here's who it's for. But we don't start with what were the questions that people had in their minds that heaven was the answer for. And so that's where we want to go. And you listed a bunch of different questions that we want to kind of get to. Um, and one of them, the one that we said we were going to at least start this episode with, was talking about heaven as a revolution. So wait, what's the question there? Yeah, it's... What is heaven? It, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a part of the question of how, how will God set things right, and so that's why I kind of kind of try to frame that. I think we Protestant modern day Christians are familiar with that question, but then the paradigm we have for what is wrong and how it needs to be fixed, I think, is quite different from the paradigm that the biblical authors uh, or the paradigms that the various biblical authors would have had. So for instance, like... Are you going to start talking about like angelic beings and all these, the spiritual realm and all that kind of stuff again? You know, I don't have to, t- I don't have to answer that question. <laughs> uh, I can talk about weird okay, but stuff. Okay, no, but here's what I want to say. It's because it seems like there's other things that are wrong in the world other than just there's these divine beings that are at war or the biblical writers thinking there are there's d- these divine beings and this other realm that's at war with us, and we need to take back our rightful. I guess that's cool, and I want to hear about that. But I also want to know what about the, what about all the real problems in the world? What about the real suffering that's in our world right now? And you know what I'm saying? Like even just look around the states, and right for the last year or two, and there, you can come up with enough problems that we need an answer to. We need a, an ultimate fix for. So I don't want to just live in the angelic realm. I want to know how are we going to actually actually fix these other problems, real problems that are going on. Does that make sense? It does. I won't make you live in the angelic realm today, Nate. Uh, <laughs> I'm just not going to let you off that easily. <laughs> well, we'll actually, uh, this episode, we'll probably only brush up against uh, the kind of weird spiritual being stuff. Um, but actually, what we'll mostly get into is actually more socioeconomic, uh, to use our modern language around it, Um in, in terms of a reversal of the power structures of this world, ah. what we'll touch on is that the biblical authors all have a view in which the power structures of this world are intimately connected with power structures in this other world of this heavenly realm where the gods and divine beings and angels and all that live. Um, but we, we won't touch on that piece uh so much, but let me start by asking you, Nate. Hit me. If you were to try to 
give the kind of summary explanation of according to the Bible, in, in your view, past or present, uh, what is wrong and what needs to be fixed? Yeah, I, I feel like I'm pretty good at giving like what I used to teach. That's like what comes to my head <laughs> really quickly, which is that there's this, the problem is sin. And uh, I don't know, I don't, we want to get to like who introduced sin into the world, but sin was introduced into the world. We failed. We, we fell short. And since then, every human has fallen short of the glory of God. And so we need to, um, even before you do anything, there's this sin problem that needs to be fixed. And, uh, and that's what, that's what needs to be set right. And so that's what Jesus set right. And if you believe in him, then you will have all of those sins, like overlooked, washed away, like all this kind of stuff and go to the, go to whatever the good place is. You'll go there. If not, you go to the other place. But so that's the problem. It's, it's the sin problem. Does that, is that fair? Do you think, or is that a little too simplified? You mean, is that fair to the, the kind of the, the typical conception? Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it pretty much is. And, and what's in, so you say sin, what I really think you're saying and what I really think most people are saying is guilt, right? So you, I don't know. Well, let me talk about it for a second and you tell me if this is guilt or not. Okay. okay. So you're, you, you fall short, right? So that's like this, um, there's this measure, there's this bar and you don't, you don't measure up to, and it's the glory of God, it's perfection. And you don't measure up to that. There's nothing actually you could do to measure up to that. So <laughs> don't even try. And because you don't measure up to that, you never be good enough to be in God's presence. And so that's the problem. I think how, how it usually would be communicated is that's the problem. Is that guilt? Uh, Yes, I see. So you, the second go, you emphasized to be in God's presence, right? So then what you're articulating is that sin is kind of an obstacle or barrier. If the goal is for humans to be in God's presence, to be with God, uh, which I do... Well, that's, I mean, that's what heaven is, right? Yes, and I I do think that's a a basic building block of... uh, the the view or the hope described in the scriptures. Um, but then what's implied is because essentially the, the dual doctrines of total depravity and original sin, that all of us are tainted mm. or imperfect or uh, unfit to be in God's presence. Therefore, something has to happen uh, to, to change that status, right? Yes, exactly. And and this reminds me of our friend Crispin Mayfield wrote a, a guest blog for Almost Radical's blog. You should go check it out. It's called Hell, Anxiety, and Attachment Theory. It's it's really amazing, but it's about this, like we all have this desire to be accepted and Christianity starts with, at least in the West over the last few hundred years, it starts with you are not good enough to be in God's presence. There's something fundamentally wrong about you that needs to be fixed and God can only be around people that have been fixed. So whether it's covering you up with Jesus so that he can't see that stuff or changing you, even, even I think in a better, a better view would be people saying like, no, he's going to change. He's going to do the work to change you, but it's still starting with something's wrong about you and there's nothing you can do about it. But from, from the day you were born, even before that, something was wrong with you that needs to be fixed for you to be with God. And I was like, wow. You know, I, I never really thought about it like that until I started reading some of Crispin's stuff. But that's a really messed up place to to start the story from. You know what I'm saying? 
Yeah, totally, totally. Well, I think so. So that way of describing the problem and solution, um, when you emphasize uh, being in God's presence, I do think it gets uh, much closer than. For instance, when we emphasize uh, we're guilty and must be forgiven, right? And that's like when we talk about the chasm thing. Mm -hmm. Or, for instance, you're guilty and you're going to be punished to hell. And so the goal is to get you out of that line, right? Get out of the line to hell and get in uh, to the line to heaven. Um, So uh, part of the conversation we're going to have today is to say that um, if you're interested, I think one one area of study that I found fascinating. We did uh, some conversations on atonement uh, back several months ago. And I didn't get into it in detail. There, there is actually a paper uh, on our website if you're interested. But I actually think much of the New Testament language around the problem and the goal, i.e. what did Jesus accomplish, right? What did his life and death and resurrection and ascension accomplish is rooted in an ancient view of cosmology that uh, the Jews shared with many of their neighbors, which was that of sacred space and profane space, and uh, essentially divine contact with humanity or with, uh, with the profane world. And there, there was totally a belief that we as we are, are unfit to be in God's presence. But it had nothing to do with with guilt or because we weren't good enough. Hmm. It actually simply had to do with this idea that we have to prepare ourselves and even the, the space itself for that contact. And that is what the entire sacrificial system, the entire temple system. I was going to say that's like temple type stuff, right? Totally. That's what uh, atonement, the day of atonement and the rituals were. It's why the blood wasn't sprinkled on the person who's giving the sacrifice. The blood was sprinkled around the tabernacle itself as essentially an insulating layer of life that would act as a sort of like glove uh, between God and the priest that would keep the priest from dying. So it had very uh, little, I would say nothing to do with God not liking us, which is so often how this gets internalized, right? And the language around atonement gets internalized. And it really had to do with these conceptions of, of what do we have to do to prepare human space for, it started with the, the tent, the tabernacle, and then the temple. What do we have to do to prepare that space for God to come be in it? And that same language gets talked about the entire world, right? So where you start the story uh, in Genesis is you have this space, this garden, a paradise. It's essentially uh, what the word Eden means uh, in Hebrew, it, where God and humans can be together. It's an overlap of divine space and uh, this new, according to the story, this new world, this new earthy space. And are we talking about the garden on this one then? 
Not quite. Uh, just kind of like oh, okay. basically trying to get us to, to see the problem through a, a more nuanced view. Okay. But basically, so much of the language around atonement is the idea that Jesus' death and, and blood, just like the, the blood of animals, gets essentially, me- metaphorically, sprinkled over the entire earth so that all of this world has now been ritually, ceremonially prepared for contact between the divine and humans. And that's why, for instance, you get food now declared to be clean and acceptable for eating, and there's no more temple, and the Holy Spirit now is able to indwell human beings on mass scale. It's this idea that, the, that there very much was a sense of, we can't be with God anymore. That's like this idea of, Adam and Eve getting kicked out of the garden and there being these crazy, fiery uh, cherubim set at the entrances, right? To this picture, like in the end of Revelation, where you have uh, this image of God and mankind dwelling, and there's no need for a temple structure, right? And there's no need for sacrifices because we have been prepared to interact and make contact with God. But again, that has nothing to do with the fact the idea that God doesn't like us. <laughs> mm-hmm. It actually has to do with an entire set of assumptions that none of us believe today, right? <laughs> like we don't believe that there is some fact about the cosmos that makes us need an insulating liner of blood. Yeah. <laughs> right. So again, we'll get in we can get into that later. It gets back to the atonement conversation. Um, but but related. So when we're trying to think about the the aim, then the problem that's uh, described and then the, therefore the solution that is, is presented. Uh, I, I do think being in God's presence is a big piece of it, but the biblical story is totally focused on a whole other piece that at least in my past was almost completely ignored, which has to do with who is ruling, hmm. who is in charge, where power lies. And so Again, you go back to the very first page of the Bible, the whole point of God creating humans, the the human in Adam, is to rule over this new world. And again, we talked in earlier episodes where uh, I tried to make a case that the main story that Genesis 1 through 11 is telling is that a war broke out between these divine cosmic beings and humanity. And the, the logical implication uh, that many Jews thought this through is the sense, that, the belief that these angelic beings, the serpent, f- for example, uh, was jealous that God had given humanity the right to rule over this space. And basically they wanted the right to rule. Uh, that was one of the, when we asked, why is there a snake in the garden? Uh, that's one way of answering that question is there was a snake in the garden because the snake and other divine beings or this dragon serpent uh, figure wanted to seize humanity's right to rule here. But then what happens, so you get strange stories like there's a snake in the garden and then these strange stories in Genesis 6 of God's coming down and sleeping with (laughs) human women, right? But then most of the rest of what you see in Genesis 1 through 11 isn't about weird cosmic beings. It's about people. Right, so you have Cain and Abel and violence happening there, and then you have 
Lamech and the violence is multiplying and then you have the Tower of Babel scene, right? Uh, and the flood all happening in between. And, and most of that is not necessarily related to a, a war for power between the divine realm and human realm. It's saying that that war for power has created a war for power amongst humans. So that starts literally in the first descendants uh, of Adam and Eve, uh, according to the Cain and Abel story, if you're reading this sort of literarily. But it, the effect, the literary effect is that warring is spiraling out of control. And that's part of what this Tower of Babel scene uh, is depicting is the creation. So it's essentially the, the Tower of Babylon, that the creation of an empire to rule one empire, one society who thinks it's their job to rule over the whole world, that that is the epitome (laughs) of what has gone wrong. Now, now think about this. We know who wrote the scriptures, right? And we know when, for instance, roughly, Genesis 1 through 11 was added to the scriptures. It was when (laughs) Israel was living under the oppression of the Babylonian Empire. So uh, a greater paradigm is that there uh, is massive real political uh, upheaval, a real political, socioeconomic, sociopolitical problem, not just like we aren't right with God, right? (laughs) It's not the hyper-individualistic Christianity uh, of Western Protestantism. It's this universal, large-scale talking about nations and communities and societies and civilizations uh, problem. And and then when you move forward into Genesis, I know it's kind of covering a lot of ground real fast. What's the first thing that happens after the Tower of Babel is the idea that God's going to start a nation amongst all the nations of the world that will be essentially the, the new Adam and Eve to to rule the world and to rule it in the kind of way, not like the Tower of Babel, the anti-Babel, the anti-Babylon, that would rule the world in a way that would actually bless everyone in the whole world. So what we we know, and it's obvious and comes out (laughs) everywhere throughout the rest of the scriptures, is that Israel believed that its entire identity was to inherit the the right (laughs) and the power to rule the world yeah right and we, we talked about how da- dangerous a religious idea idea that is but all, we also know that israel never got close <laughs> to, to ruling the world right like we talked about last time jerusalem was the best thing they ever had going and jerusalem has been ruled by other nations as long as it was ever ruled by israel uh, or judah and so a major part of the problem in every biblical writer's head, the writers, the redactors, the editors, and every Jew, even if their theology was not good, every Jew knew that one of the major problems was they were supposed to be ruling the world as God's (laughs) chosen uh, ambassadors, and instead they were being ruled over, right? So when they were to ask the problem, how will God set things right? That in large part meant, how will God bring us to to be ruling rather than being ruled over? And I think there's a piece that happens here 
that you can kind of trace through various pieces of scripture, that that becomes a more universal s- scope, a more universal question of how will all of the little marginalized oppressed peoples in the world uh, be redeemed from the empires of the world who are colonizing and ruling over them. And what we'll see is that heaven and the, the hope of God setting things right is in large part simply saying that will be switched. There will be a reversal and the little guy will rule the, the big guy. Those that were in power and in charge will no longer be uh, in power. Hey, Brian, do you know anyone that was once a teenage fundamentalist? Oh, Troy, you know that I was because you and I have a podcast called I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. I did know that. But you know what I find myself asking these days? No, I don't, but I think you're going to tell me. What about all those things that church gave us definite answers for? What are we supposed to think about all those things now? Well, funnily enough, that's what we're doing for season five of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist. Ooh, Brian. I sense the Lord at work here. Mm, He works in mysterious ways. And we are going to unpack these things. We're going to find out what we do think about them now. So tune in to Season 5 of I Was a Teenage Fundamentalist, the official podcast for the Azusa Street Revival. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm not quite sure that's true, but it is available wherever you get your podcasts. But if heaven isn't saying, but there's going to be new rules about how that ruling happens, then that's really not good news, in my opinion, because like we've talked about before on the show, once you're in power, you end up just doing the same things that the others did, and now you're the big guy, and everyone else is the little guy, and you're taking it back out on them. You know, Even if you start out with good intentions, that's not usually the way it ends. And so there's got to be some ethics or something around this as to why Israel would have been the ones to rule and the way they were supposed to rule and the way that is then going to, to happen in this heaven space, at least in the biblical writers' minds. Is that is that true? Well, totally. And, and I totally agree with you. But I mean, like how else is Jesus good news, <laughs> you know, other than to say that the the person and and being who believed and others believed about him that he deserved and inherited the keys to the kingdom, all power on heaven and earth to rule not just the entire world, but to rule the heavens, that that is the same person who decided it was better to wash his friend's feet uh, than to allow them to serve him, right? Like that, that is the beauty of, of Christianity. And so if we just have a story that you know, one people group is destined to rule on God's behalf instead of the other people. Like, I'm not interested at all, (laughs) right? If it's just a matter of who's in charge, if that's really all we're talking about, you're right. It's just more toxic religion. Uh, But if what we're saying is that the entire story is actually flipping on its head what ruling even means, uh, then we've got something potentially really profound and, and beautiful there. Uh, so we'll talk about that. We'll talk about heaven and and what ruling means. But what I first want to see is I don't think we can fully get to that question of essentially how Jesus and and the early Christianity that formed around Jesus, how that totally 
subverted the ways of power and and put forth a possible a possible world in which we aren't just racing each other to the top and taking turns ruling one another but actually envisioned a world where everyone rules by the fact that no one rules that that, that was actually the vision but i think before we can get there <laughs> Uh, it's kind of like when we've had the conversations and it's like uh, you always push back uh, on like, well, doesn't the line of good and evil, good and evil run between all of us in, individually? And I go, yes, but let's not let's not jump there first. Like, let's get a, a, a big picture uh, fact in place first, which is that, you know, like not all evil is is the same. And one thing I think we need to get in here first is that a major part of the conception, uh, forget the idea of, for instance, just Israel being the ones appointed to rule. A major part of the conception is that part of what the biblical authors believed God was committed to ultimately and in the end was reversing the power structures of this world. Now, how we would keep that reversal from just becoming the next worst empire, right? That's a that's a good and important question. Yeah. But I think that we should tackle that second. First, we should just look at the fact that there needs to be a reversal. And I think we'll be a little surprised at just how plain and simple we see some of these ideas of there being a essentially divine coup, which overthrows the empires. Okay. So you said a coup. So explain that a bit. Like when did this start? How does this work? Who's doing the cooing? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's go back to uh, a story. Let's have a Bible study, Nate. Let's do it. Uh, let's go back to a story that we actually just looked at uh, recently when we were talking about hell. And I know it's one that in your past has been super formative. Um, sheep and the goats? Not sheep and the goats. The other one, the rich man and Lazarus. Oh, okay. Uh, in Luke 16. The sheep and the goat. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh so, again, we talked about, you know, when we looked at it, we were talking about hell, and we pointed out it's it's not trying to teach us the mechanics of hell or Hades, which is really what's talked about here, um, but it does reveal some of the underlying assumptions, right? Um, but let's not just focus on the idea of, like, you know, how are bad people punished or whatever. And I think we'll just notice some interesting uh, things in this story. So... Uh, let's just go classic style and have you read it. Luke sixteen nineteen. All right. I do not bring a sword with me to the podcast. So I will just be jumping on the computer. <laughs> <laughs> All the way to 31. Go for it. The rich man and Lazarus. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away, with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, 
so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Okay, so knowing we're talking about what we're talking about, uh, and that I just threw out uh, language like a coup, uh, what do you notice anything interesting, or uh, I guess do you notice anything missing? I guess in in terms of an explanation that you would sort of assume to be here. Why why did they go to the places they went? Right. When we talked about it, I I said an implication that I think is a fair implication from the story and one that most of us make, but actually isn't in this story at all, which is the idea that the rich man had unjustly neglected Lazarus. True. Right. But this story actually doesn't say that. And the story actually doesn't say that the rich man did anything wrong. Right? right. So we s- sort of read this and we're like, oh, so there was a, there was a good guy. I think is the assumption we make. There was a good guy, a good Jew uh, named Lazarus who happened to be a beggar. And there was a bad guy who doesn't get a name. He's just this bad rich guy. Uh, and, and then I think we kind of fill in the gap in terms of why uh, he was a bad guy, right? Like what he mm-hmm. did. It's true. Uh, so you kind of always made that same assumption that, that basically... Yeah, I preach that, man. Yeah. But what's interesting, in the passage is an explanation for why they go where they go. Uh, okay, so 25. Remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things? That one? Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And nowhere in there does it talk about sin or guilt or righteousness or anything but it gives us an explanation this dude lazarus had a bad life (laughs) he was poor miserable sick and you had a good life and and the picture being painted here that's just assumed (laughs) that we're all on the same page is what god's going to do is switch that it's going to be reversed so i think we've been trained to think with this sort of like a moral compass that then fill, fills in what this text isn't saying. And then when we fill it in that way, we ignore what the text is actually saying, which is that the rationale hmm. is simply reversal. Yeah. I think when some of the words in there kind of uh, trigger or send us back to other pictures we've heard, like chasm, right? There's this great chasm between us that's been set in place. I mean, that we picture the, the two cliffs and then that whole thing comes back to us and we fill in all the details with all that stuff, you know? And I was thinking about this today, like, we just want so badly to, uh, and you see it on any church doctrinal statement or statement of beliefs or whatever, there's, here's what we believe, and then here's all the verses that, that you know, if you put them all together, you'll come up with this belief, right? And this is exactly what's happening here. Like this story, if you just, if we just take it for this story and what can we, what can we like learn or what were the people supposed to learn when they heard this or why was this written or all that kind of stuff, you don't necessarily get to any of that, right? 
But when you combine it with a bunch of other things and get the biblical vision of heaven and hell, that biblical vision of salvation or whatever topic you want, you want to go for, you pull all these verses together and, and you, you know, you're trying to use the context of what that verse was, but you're pushing all this con- all these contexts together to come up with one thing. And here are the nine verses for why we put that in our doctrinal statement. You know what I'm saying? And I think that's what's happening here. Totally. And so some of it, again, I think is justified because the, the idea in the story is that there is a warning Right. That's why the the rich man says he wants to send Lazarus. So I remember East reading and like, well, the rich man still thinks he can boss Lazarus around. Right. Like, so even in the afterlife, he's like treating Lazarus like a slave. I mean, maybe. Yeah. That. Uh, I never, I never, I never saw that one. I never heard that one. That's interesting. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So like, okay, that, that could be a, a fair reading. Right. But it, it's not explicitly there. It could be implicitly written in, but there is definitely a sense that there's there's an idea in which the the rich man could have lived differently, and then have have received a different judgment, right? So that's there. And, but then what we're, what we're attaching to that is that he was unjust or unfaithful or unrighteous. But but I think especially knowing that this story is in Luke and only in Luke, the actual assumption when you're reading through Luke is that what what was supposed to happen, remember the other rich man that Luke talks about? Uh, The rich young ruler that comes to Jesus? Yeah, yeah. And he won't won't give up all his stuff and, and give it to the poor. Yeah. He asks, basically, what do I have to do to go to heaven? (laughs) <laughs> but he doesn't think he's going to go to heaven. He wants eternal life. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go sell all your stuff and give it to the poor. So why do you think Luke includes these two stories? There's a real rich man, right? Uh, with a real command from Jesus, which doesn't happen very often. And then you have a, this story that Jesus is telling <laughs> of some other unnamed rich man and, uh, and then, really fascinatingly, a poor man named Lazarus. And then when you compare with John and the Gospel of John and Jesus' real friend Lazarus, it's, it's really interesting to reflect on that. But the assumption in Luke here is that what repentance would have been is this rich man giving away all his things and selling his possessions and giving his money to the poor. What does that mean? It means that... <laughs> that what was supposed to happen in this life is essentially willfully enacting what you believe will happen in the afterlife, Hmm. a reversal of fortune and power. So the idea is (laughs) that the rich in this life and the poor in this life, the poor are stuck because the rich won't give up their riches, right? (laughs) The, the beggars of the world, like this man, Lazarus, uh, are not effective in their begging, right? The, the rich and powerful don't, don't listen and willfully choose to lay down their own rights in order to help out their neighbor, to level the playing field. And so the hope is in a higher power <laughs> to enact what these biblical writers, like Luke, think is justice and restoration and shalom, which most modern Westerners would call socialism, <laughs> divine socialism is God doing the Robin Hood thing and taking from the rich to give to the poor. So 
Jesus tells rich people to do that here and now, and you'll have eternal life. Then he tells a story that those who don't do that in the here and now will have that done for them uh, in the afterlife. Hmm. And again, we talked about <laughs> this is good news for one party, right? <laughs> it's, it's bad news uh, for the other party. Luke is super fascinating. He's super captivated, especially with economics. And there's no separation. You read through Luke's gospel. There's talking about money, rich people, poor people everywhere. Um, but this basic idea of a reversal of fortune, a reversal of power, including economic power, but not limited to economic power, uh, it's all over the place and it runs through the Old Testament. And we miss it. <laughs> we miss it because we've, in one sense, spiritualized everything, right? So so look at where else this shows up is the Beatitudes in the, ser- in the Sermon on the Mount. Mm. Yeah. It's super obvious but actually, do you remember, Nate, uh, we had an argument back in the day uh, with some of the other people we're doing ministry with about how to interpret the Beatitudes. Do you remember that at all? Oh, was this like, are you supposed to try to be these things? Exactly. So, Or is you, are you just blessed if you are that? Yeah. I think I just remember the argument because it was pretty, pretty typical to the argument that I think most Christians have had at some point <laughs> about how to interpret uh, the, the blessings Uh, which we call the Beatitudes, which is so like, blessed are the poor. So like, how do we become poor, right? Like, how do we become spiritually poor? Like, what does it mean to be meek, right? And like one of the pastors in the church network I used to come from did a whole series on like how to become all these things. There are a variety of ways that Christians have spiritualized and, and usually Western wealthy compared to the rest of history and the rest of the world that wealthy people have rationalized how the beatitudes are not what they simply seem to be which is jesus saying that some portion of society is blessed and another portion of society will not be blessed right we've tried to to spiritualize them so that we can universalize them right so that if a rich person shows up to church on Sunday, <laughs> that they can fit into the picture, right? Or if, uh, you know, the ruler of the empire shows up. Or if your entire church is rich people. Right, yeah. <laughs> or if Constantine becomes a Christian, like he can find his place uh, in the Beatitudes, yeah. right? Right. That's just not what it's saying. <laughs> it's, it's simply Jesus declaring good news, the gospel, to the poor people, <laughs> to the miserables, to the oppressed, to the marginalized. Why? Because the long-awaited reversal is about to happen. So why is Jesus yell and, and act really angry and harsh towards some people <laughs> and then tell other people, you are blessed and, and you are about to receive uh, good things? For instance, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. So like, this seems like the hard, harshest criticism is to the people who should be enacting this now, the religious people, but are actually doing the opposite. So there's like other people that maybe don't even know they should be enacting this and he's not like crazy harsh against them. There's like a warning or whatever, but then there's the people that are the religious people who should be doing this now in preparation for, in like, you know, in, in keeping with what heaven will be like. And they're not, they're actually doing the opposite. And that's who he's the harshest with. Yeah, well, and it's the people who are actually in power within Israel, the Pharisees and, and the priests. So these are these are the, the leaders and the priests. They're basically 
the social equivalent of the megachurch pastors and uh, your your local, you know, your governor. Um, and <laughs> he scolds them constantly. And these are the people he yells to about Gehenna, <laughs> right? And then he goes around to poor, miserable, not perfect people, right? Prostitutes <laughs> who don't line up with anything like our modern Western focus on the family, uh, so-called biblical <laughs> family ethics, right? And embraces them, accepts them, and declares that they are blessed. <laughs> and the whole point is that the whole thing is about to be flipped on its head. So the kingdom of God, when Jesus says, good news, the kingdom of God is here. When all the gospels open up with good news that the kingdom of God has come near, how does, for instance, Mary in the Magnificat, this is, or said, I think this is one of the most clear uh, and simple depictions of what the gospel was to people 2,000 years ago. You see, a part of Mary's song is, Praising God for, quote, starting at verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Hmm. Nowhere in there is it like only really, really good poor people, right? Or hungry people. Or only the really, really bad rich people, right? Or only the really cruel violent rulers get cast down from their thrones or only the really religious humble people get lifted up. Mary was a poor (laughs) marginalized woman of color who has a basic hope that that God is the kind of God that her God Yahweh is the kind of God that will lead a revolution in which her oppressors will be cast off and the other oppressed people alongside her will be lifted up. And not only did she have that hope, she believed that that's the entire purpose and aim of Jesus. Like that's what the thing is about, is accomplishing the reversal of power. So when you start to see this stuff, you see it's all over. I mean, it's the whole logic, a couple ways to interpret this, but the whole idea of the first will be last and the last will be first. Um, you see it in, in Paul's language everywhere. When I, uh, when we did the gender series, I I tried to keep hammering home the idea that in, in all of the passages where we've been trained to read them as Paul reinforcing patriarchal power dynamics, right? Telling women that they need to submit even more and men that they need to be in charge even more. That in every single situation, if you read more carefully, you realize he's doing the opposite based on what he thinks is a, is a basic ramification of the gospel of Jesus, is that to follow Jesus means that you, you are to relinquish your power over other people. And if you're not the kind of person who, who wants to choose in this life right now to relinquish your power over, for instance, your spouse or... As he writes to Philemon, <laughs> the letter to Philemon, he's threatening a slave owner and saying, if you won't release essentially your your right to see your slave as a slave, but instead choose to treat him as an equal brother, 
that you're proving ineffective in following Jesus. Mm. It's exactly the same idea in the the rich man and Lazarus story (laughs) or the rich young ruler, right? Are you willing to relinquish your economic power over the poor person standing next to you? If not, okay, well, then you're just not willing to follow Jesus because that's what it means to follow Jesus and these writers' minds. And therefore, that reversal will be forced upon you right? <laughs> so the view is that the reversal is going to happen. That's the hope for most of the people in the world, the 99%. And that we either have an option, all of us have the option to opt in, right? It's not like the Christianity or the gospel or Jesus isn't available to everyone. The point is that to to the people with power and money, that it, it costs them, right? <laughs> You see this everywhere. This is like where the count the cost stuff comes. Uh, That it costs them because what it means to opt in is to opt out of your power, to opt out of your socioeconomic status, and to go down the ladder, right? This is the whole washing of feet and becoming a servant uh, rather than lording over others, right? Again, like... I think this is, ba- this is the basic building block of Christianity. I know it's been, we've framed this as totally uh, the opposite, right? Where most of us, I think, have experienced Christianity that reinforces those in power and reinforces a, uh, a desire for, for gaining and, and keeping power. Give me that really quick. So what what does that look like? Gaining and keeping power, like reinforcing that. What do people actually experience like in their in their church? That doesn't seem like it's all about power, right? It seems like it's all about like Jesus and the gospel. And so what what would they see there as far as what it looks like to double down on power? I mean, I, I think it shows up in a thousand ways. The entire way that we have organized p- pastors as individuals who basically make the decisions in a church. Uh, I think is, is, and, and, and pastors, depending on the the kind of style of church and then these, uh, elder boards where basically you have different tiers of people who have different authority to make different decisions. (laughs) I know everyone that's doing that is rooting that in what they think Paul is saying about the calling of elders and all that. We did an episode back in the day trying to debunk that. I think that entire way of thinking about organizing people in a community is antithetical to Christianity. I think the entire framework of complementarianism is is just this, like disguised as Christianity, right? It's saying that actually what God wants is one group of people, men, to be in charge and another group of people uh, to not be in charge, that that is the ideal, the biblical norm uh, and what we need to do is reinforce that. And then, of course, <laughs> we'll have, we've seen so much of the various versions in America and Russia and so many other places where the way that the church approaches culture and politics is to try to gain power within the culture, to change the laws, uh, to enforce its culture, uh, upon uh, the society and uh, essentially is kind of like a, a takeover, right? It's like the, the church as kind of like an army out in the world. Um, there are a, th- a thousand different ways, but honestly, anytime you see a hierarchy, a chain of command, 
and I know this sounds extreme and radical and I sound like a crazy hippie liberal, but I have seen this work and it doesn't have to be crazy and extreme and radical. You can be a normal person with normal struggles and whatever and a job and real life and participate in capitalism and, and still spend your life trying to relinquish your power over other people. It works in marriage. It works in parenting. It, it just, it's a, it's actually a good and effective way to live. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we should do even more on this show about that. Like practically, what does that look like? Because I think there's a lot of people that are like, yes, I agree. And now I have no clue like what this looks like because, and I think this is the other tricky part with this. As I was listening to you talk about, you know, what's going to happen to the powerful, what's going to happen to the weak, what the powerful should be doing right now, the powerful and the rich, what they should be doing right now. I think the other confusing piece here is like, we often don't know who's what, right? Like who, who actually are the powerful and the rich and who are the, the weak and the, the poor, like, you know what I'm saying? Like there's some, it's such a, it's so blurry sometimes. I mean, I think the poor know who they are oftentimes, but I, I don't know. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, what does this look like? I, I know it. Yes and no. I think if, if the way you're approaching this is like, oh shoot, the rich go to hell and the poor go to heaven. How do I make sure I'm in the right category? Well, then yeah, where do you draw the line? How much of your stuff is enough to give away? You can get into all that. And honestly, like, <laughs> I would just say if, if that's where you're at, you're, you're probably not thinking very, and it's going to sound cheesy or cliche, but you're probably not thinking very Christianly uh, in the sense that the point, the point is not how do you get in the right line. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The point is what's, what's the best way to live your life? But if what you're, if what, your approach is the the way that you're asking that kind of question is to try to figure out practical ways to enact the the Jesus paradigm of giving away your power so that others can flourish i mean just look at the think about for a sec reflect on the scene that the gospels give to us of Jesus enacting a foot washing right in many churches and many traditions every year before easter Uh, try to uh, remember (laughs) this event by and enact it right by going through a a kind of ceremonial foot washing uh, to enact the the service but remember that all of Jesus's friends were dirt poor (laughs) they hadn't had nothing right and they spent the years they were traveling with Jesus giving up whatever they had already had right which was probably like a fishing boat and a clay hut and walking around if they had had anything, Jesus told them to get rid of it. So they were intentionally the poorest of the poor and were dependent on their other poor neighbors uh, for even basic provision. With Within that set of poor people, Jesus saw power dynamics at play. For instance, those poor people knew which of the other poor people were supposed to wash the feet. And so what he did is he, even within a subsect, where these are all the poor who are being blessed, he saw a power dynamic at play where one group was tasked with the menial service uh, because another group, the men, <laughs> and those men that were close to this rabbi, uh, in- inherited and didn't challenge the, the cultural norm which said that, that the women <laughs> and the servants uh, we're supposed to do those jobs. And Jesus saw that one practical thing. Like, don't get caught up in the in the foot washing piece of it because we don't do that anymore. I don't want anyone touching my feet. <laughs> yeah, right. But the point is he saw one practical way 
And he used that as an example that we're still talking about 2,000 years later of how how very everyday practical situations present the possibility for totally reversing uh, the norm. And so that's actually where I think 90% of this takes place is those little interactions, which, again, if you ever encounter them, they have the potential to be absolutely enormous and (laughs) life-changing if someone is finally treated with equality and equity Mm -hmm. uh, when they're used to being treated... uh, as less than. So that so this is the, the, the first step is this picture. And interesting, we'll probably get into the book of Revelation soon. The entire book of Revelation is essentially a reflection on this basic idea that the, the transition from this age to the new age or from the current state of the world to a new, restored, renewed, better pl- state of things is a, a revolution and a reversal of power. Now, something that the book of Revelation is playing with is is kind of the timing issues <laughs> of this revelation or of this revolution uh, and the process. So we'll get into some of this later. But one thing that we've uh, one way that we've simplified heaven that I think has kind of kept us from seeing this is we've kind of thought of everything as this like instantaneous change right because we're usually thinking of like we die and then we go somewhere else yeah Mm -hmm. the reason why you get all this crazy imagery and this whole thousand year war and all of this (laughs) these armies coming out and these monsters and sea creatures and dragons and beasts and all this stuff in the book of revelation is it's it's playing with a depiction that that the transition itself from this earth to the new world call it heaven for now it's like a process it's still it's it's like an ongoing process type thing it's a lit it it's a literal but not literal revolution so Hmm. what what the book of revelation is playing with is that how how do real revolutions happen right how was israel trying to enact its own revolution under rome and we have accounts of this of the maccabean revolution by you you raise up a militia you find uh, an effective leader or set of leaders, you gather arms, and you eventually have the strength or not to overthrow uh, the empire, right? The, the, Ma- the Maccabeans tried this. It failed. A bunch of Jews got killed. And this is where you get some of the apocalyptic language in Jesus' day where he's saying, don't do that. This is going to happen again. You'll all be destroyed again. Jerusalem's going to get absolutely reamed. It's where you get the language in Matthew of like, get the heck out of here, go up to the hills, right? It's going to be gnarly. Um, And then you get that just tear jerking line of if, when he's making the triumphal entry of saying, oh, Jerusalem, if you only knew, if you people only knew what would bring you peace, Mm, right? And then what we know historically is 30 years later, there was an attempt at a revolution and it failed and thousands of Jews died because of it. But so the picture is that's what it takes. Someone's got to knock off the, the head honcho, right? Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not going to lay down his arms. <laughs> you know, Julius Caesar is not going to give up his power. And so typically what happens is, is a war. And then whoever wins the war and ends up in control, right? So whether or not the, the writer of the book of Revelation actually believed that Christians should be 
should be or would ever be taking up arms and participating in a real violent war or violence whatsoever, or whether he's subverting that entire idea and trying to reinforce nonviolence. You can get into that. Uh, and there's a good case to be made for the book of Revelation is actually uh, making a case for nonviolence. But what it's doing is it's playing on the shared imagination of Jews and early Christians that the transition will be a revolution in which <laughs> it doesn't just happen momentarily, but actually the, the what you see in the book of Revelation is like the most honored uh, the the martyrs of the faith, the kind of like heroes of early Christianity, they're the ones who are actually chosen to be like at the front of the lines in the revolution. So you have all this crazy war imagery and and this you know weird it seems like this weird story of a cosmic war, but the whole framework for why there would be a war is because right now the empires, the the Roman Empire. And then it's kind of depicted as like the, the prototypical Babylonian empire. These are the beasts. These these empires, described as beasts, uh, need to be overthrown. And then you have the angels get involved and the cosmic beings get involved and humans involved and all this stuff. Oh, we're back. We're back. To- <laughs> <laughs> Tap them in. Yeah. Uh, we could get into all the details. The whole point is that shared assumption in everyone's head is somehow, some way, there's got to be an overthrow of power. And that God is on the side and committed to, to doing it. And that what Jesus somehow did was basically began the revolution. Yeah, that's super weird. Uh, I just get really uncomfortable with, with the idea of a war. And, you know, it brings like the holy war and all that type of stuff. Like um, starts starts getting really strange. So unless it's a war where you like run out there and then like let everyone shoot you. And that's how you're sh- like Jesus, you know, like uh, to overcome the, the powers of evil. He succumb to the powers of evil and let the, them do the, their worst against him. But unless it's like that, like it just sounds like how is it not going to just turn into this other side then having the power and they got it through violence. And um, yeah, so we can talk about that on Utterly Heretical maybe. And so you should, uh, you should check that out. It's our other podcast that we have for Patreon supporters. You can find out more at patreon.com slash what is it? Oh, almost heretical. I forgot. I forgot the name of the show for a second. We got two shows now. Anyways, um, yeah, that's uh, that's that's fascinating. It's just a little uncomfortable. Um, and 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 this is some utterly heretical stuff here, as in as the stuff we would put on that show. But like, I don't know how that makes me feel about heaven. I, I think I feel more confused about heaven now. Um, I you know the first half of the show when we were talking about it's this reversal of power that makes a little bit more sense i still have some questions or issues or problems or whatever but that makes a little more sense but then when it gets into this you know the start of the revolution and they're going to be taking over and there's you know angels and demons and all this stuff that gets kind of weird to me honestly no totally and it and it is weird and i'm not even asking anybody to like uh get excited about it or believe it or or envision it. Um, I, I'm bringing it up to just point out that one of the basic uh, assumptions shared by, I think, all the biblical writers and Jesus uh, was that one of the th- things that is awful about this world is the way that empires rise up and, and, uh, and crush everybody. <laughs> you know, There are a few who have power and good things in this life, and there are many who have bad things in this life. 
and that the basic hope shared by those who are, are the oppressed with bad things is that God would change that, right? And the invitation, I think the basic idea is that the invitation is everyone is invited to participate in a non-scarce, universally peaceful world. Uh, it's, but where you see, uh, I think, a decent rationale for some sense of judgment, which could go down the road towards uh, creepy ideas of hell, is the idea of those who don't want to participate in that kind of world and who want to uh, take advantage of others and <laughs> and raise up kingdoms to destroy and enslave and conquer others, right? And what I what I think is is beautiful and fascinating. If if you don't understand what <laughs> what I'm talking about, you don't get the Book of Re- Revelation. Forget that stuff. What is beautiful, and we'll, and we'll get to this because again, this is part two. Uh, part one is I think understand that there's a socioeconomic and political overthrow where the poor are raised up and the rich are, are cut down. It is cosmic socialism. <laughs> that is the view shared by all of the biblical authors, and that is what they consider to be good news. But then what, what Jesus uniquely gives to the world is a, a vision in which every single human being, the Adam and Eve, the human, the, the all humans, and then every Christian, no matter Jew, Gentile, male, female, slave, or free, are co-heirs, right? We've touched on this. Paul uses this language often, co-heirs. Everyone is a ruler. <laughs> Everyone rules. And the only world, the only heaven possible that remains heaven is a world where everyone rules because no one will rule over a single other person. And, and so that world, this is what I'm saying, is the, the biblical author's view of heaven re- requires that, especially the, the Christian authors, the New Testament authors. It requires a world in which ruling ends because everyone rules. And so I know I'll probably beat this thing uh, to death, Complementarianism, the belief that men are to, in some form, even if it's small, rule over women, is literally anti-Christian. And complementarianism could not exist in the kingdom of God as all of the New Testament authors understand the kingdom of God. Because if any one of us believes that we have a right, natural right, divine right, <laughs> religious right, to to be in even some small position of authority over the others, like to think that someone else should be washing our feet, then the whole thing falls apart. It doesn't work, right? So clearly you can't ever get to actually participating in war <laughs> if you're holding this ideal. I don't even, th- I, I think you can't even... Uh, like sexism, patriarchy, racism, like none of that can even survive here, let alone like holy war, right? Hmm. Uh, so we can we can unpack that all. But if you take anything away from this, uh, it, it is that all of this language about ruling and Israel being the chosen ones to rule, all of that has to be, however you understand it, subverted and undermined entirely uh, by the the Jesus ethic of relinquishing power over other people. All right. Uh, this is part two of the Heaven series. I think we're calling it Hell and Heaven. And so it's really part five, if you count the three Hell episodes. And then this is the second of the Heaven episodes. 
And they're all together on the website at almostreticle.com. You can check that out. We love hearing from you. We read and respond to every single email we receive. You can email us contact at almostheoretical.com. And we do. We have extra content for Patreon supporters. That's a whole second podcast. We're going to be doing a conference call with um, one of the tiers of the Patreon supporters. And we'd, we'd love you to be a part of all of that and kind of join this community. And uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash almostheoretical. And we'll continue next time with the Hell and Heaven series. Um, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for being on this journey with us. You're not alone. You're not crazy. And I hope this show helps you helps you know that and, and gives you some um, help along the way in, in not feeling so crazy and alone. And that's why that's why we keep doing this. So uh, thanks so much for, for spending some time with us today. We'll see you next time. Peace, y'all.